The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. This week we are uh, continuing in our series, Psalms, Ancient Songs, Timeless Truths. So if you would, please go ahead and open up your Bibles to Psalm 12. That's where we will be tonight. Let me flip there too. Uh, Also, I want to mention, if you don't have a Bible, uh, there should be hardback Bibles in the pew backs in front of you. Um, but also, if you don't own a Bible, um, we have those. We have Bibles for free, and if you would let um, someone with a Here to Help badge know, or after service back in the lounge, they can get you a Bible if you don't own a Bible, because we want to make sure that everyone who wants a Bible owns a Bible. Um, and also, the verses will be up on the screens as well. So before we read uh, Psalm 12, uh, let me give you like a, sh- a short, quick Uh, background. The title of this psalm reads, To the Chief Musician on an Eight-Stringed Harp, a Psalm of David. The title of this psalm, like like many others uh, in this general section of the book of Psalms, uh, is simply stating the audience, the instrument, and the author of the psalm. Um, In this psalm, David mourns the vicious words of his adversaries, and in contrast, he praises the pure and precious word of God. Uh, it is supposed that, that David penned this psalm in Saul's reign, uh, while Saul was persecuting David and those who favored his cause. And when there was a general decay of, of honesty and reverence, both in court and country, which, which David here, in a fool of emotion, cries out to God about for uh, he himself suffered the treachery of, of false friends and the insolence of his sworn enemies. All right, so let's uh, read Psalm 12. Hopefully everyone's there. All right, starting in verse 1. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases to be, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. They speak falsehood to one another, with flattering lips, and with a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, The tongue that speaks great things, who have said, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are our own, who is Lord over us? Because of the devastation of the afflicted, because of the groaning of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will preserve him from this generation forever. The wicked strut about on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. So verse 1, it it starts with one of the shorter prayers in the Bible. Two words, help, Lord, help. Sometimes it is the the short, sharp cry of our hearts that prevail with God, rather than the longer, more laborious ramblings. 
Didn't, didn't Jesus teach this to the Pharisees as well, that, that they shouldn't heap up phrases, assuming that God would hear them because of, of the language they used or because of the amount of words that they used? Um, so think about this in life with me. Uh, imagine with me, if you will, that you are walking by a lake, and there's, there's someone in the lake, and they're flailing all about. And, and imagine, this is what you hear them say. Oh, I beseech thee, you who are of human nature like me, the proximity of my head to the base of the lake is such that it would be an eminent blessing if thou could, in the foreseeable future, intervene on my behalf. <laughs> what? No, that, that doesn't make any sense. Why would you not just shout out, help, I'm drowning, right? And so sometimes it is that, maybe even so today for some of us, that, that our most earnest prayer is two words, help, Lord, some of us would do well to, to pray this more often. Some of us would even pray this more often if we would stop living functionally independent from God and over assuming our own strength and our own abilities aside from God. Instead of trying to figure things out on our own, instead of worrying, instead of searching high and low, may it instead be that, that our hearts cry and first response would be, Help, Lord. As, as a child instinctively cries to its father, may it be so that we instinctively cry to God. So, so why is David crying out, help, Lord? Verse 1 again, help, Lord, for the godly man ceases to be, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. So the psalm starts with this phrase because David is living in a time of spiritual decay, so his cry is, help, Lord. These people don't know you. These people don't love you. Help, Lord. He is lamenting the souls of the wicked and also the evil that they meant for him. So I have a question for us. When is the last time that we cried out to God, help, Lord, for the sake of the lost? When is the last time that we cried out to God that we lamented over those who don't know Jesus? The death, departure, and decline of godly men and women should be for us a trumpet call for more prayer. So David was, he was also crying out because he felt alone and he felt surrounded by those who meant to do him harm. You see, David was a fierce warrior and he was a soldier, but, but we see here that he also had to, to deal with battles of, of gossip and backbiting, of idle and deceptive talkers. David knew what it was like to feel all alone in this kind of battle where it seemed that no one would speak up for him and no one would defend him. But he knew who to turn to, to the Lord himself. Many scholars point out that, that David was not only saying that those who were uh, worldly were ungodly and unfaithful, but, but this was a prevailing issue in the church of God, that those in the church were no longer godly and faithful. Spurgeon says this, when godliness goes, faithfulness inevitably follows. Without fear of God, men have no truth, have no, sorry, men have no love of truth. You'll be hearing a lot from Spurgeon tonight, uh, per usual. Um, so, so here's a reminder of of some of what the Bible says are godly and faithful Christians. 
Godly and faithful Christians are those who have received the grace and mercy of the Lord. They've received pardoning mercy, justifying and adopting grace, and who have principles of grace, goodness, and holiness throughout them, who fear the Lord and serve him acceptably with reverence and godly fear, who abide by the truths and ordinance of God and sorrow for sin, who love the Lord and hope and believe in him, who are regenerated and sanctified by the Spirit of God and are true worshipers of God, who are faithful in in what is committed to their trust and live in all holy conversation and godliness and are particularly charitable, kind, and merciful towards all, especially their brothers and sisters in Christ. That's a lot. That's, that's a high call, and, and I don't know about you, but I want that to be true of me. I want to be more and more like that. May God help us and keep us through the finished work of his Son and by his Holy Spirit that we would be godly and faithful Christians. So David here, he, he sees the extreme danger of his position because a man would do better to be among lions than to be among liars. He feels his own inability to deal with such ungodly and unfaithful liars and deceivers. So, therefore, he turns himself to his all-sufficient helper, the Lord, whose help is never denied to his servants and whose aid is enough for all their needs. We should be fully persuaded of this, that, that the greater the confusion of things in the world and, and the greater the evil in the world and the wrong in the world, God is so much more the ready to aid and help his people. And that it is, in, and that it is then the most proper season for him to interject his assistance. Verse 2, let's, let's read verse 2 again. They speak falsehood to one another with flattering lips and with a double heart they speak. Instead of of the godly man, David saw around him those who spoke with idle chatter and and who were two-faced liars. They spoke falsehood to one another. They spoke that which is false and is a lie, either doctrinal or practical. They, they spoke what was not according to the word of God and was vain and empty and filthy and corrupt and which no godly or faithful Christian should do. With flattering lips and with a double heart they speak. This is literally in, in the original uh, language text is with lips of smoothness and with a heart and a heart do they speak? You see, a flatterer is said to be a beast that bites smiling. It's hard to know them from friends. Like, like a wolf resembles a dog, sometimes a flatterer looks like a friend. A flatterer is just like a person in a canoe, imagine this, that looks one way and rows another way. Because this person pretends one thing and intends another thing. So they spoke with flattering lips, just like Cain did to Abel, just like Judas did to Jesus, just like false teachers do to those that are simple, just like hypocrites to God himself when they draw close to him with only their lips. And sometimes, unfortunately, even like pastors, when they profess profess themselves to be what they are not. The essence of of flattering lips is, is that they say what people want to hear. And aren't there many such talkers today? 
even within the church, those who, who know the right answer for every occasion, but, but speak with no honesty or transparency of heart. They constantly speak what people hope to hear or what is assumed to be proper instead of, of their true thoughts, feelings, and actions. When, when, someone, with, uh, when someone has doubleness of heart, it, it makes them uh, double or, or variable in their speech. And, and they do this, and this happens because it's in order to disguise themselves in different ways or to make themselves appear different to others from, from what they really are. This could be called the disease of duplicity. They are like double-minded people who say one thing and mean another. Their words are not to be dependent upon, and there is no faithfulness found in them. I have another question for us. Do we ever find ourselves speaking with two hearts? One for the church and another for the world. One for Sundays and another for the work days. One for, Christians brother, for Christian brothers and sisters and another around friends who don't know the Lord. One for the glorifying of King Jesus and another for the shaming of his name. You see, there, there are too many people uh, that make a great show of holiness, and yet their hearts aim at other ends. But this, this they can be sure of, and this, this should shake all of us, that though they can deceive the world and destroy themselves, they don't deceive God, who knows the secrets of all hearts. Thomas Adams says this, a man without a heart is a wonder, but a man with two hearts is a monster. And with him, I would have to agree. Our speech as Christians must be sincere in order that it may be like a mirror in which the uprightness of our heart may be observed so that Christ may be glorified. Verse 3, may the Lord cut off all flattering lips the tongue that speaks great things. David felt somewhat helpless against these destructive chatterers. He, find his, he found his refuge in the Lord, to whom he appealed to cut off the tongue that speaks proud things. You see, men cannot tame the tongues of such boastful flatterers, but the Lord's remedy is sharp and sure, and it is an unanswerable answer to their swelling words of vanity. Those who take pleasure in deceiving others will find themselves most of all deceived when Jesus, the Son of Truth, brightly and triumphantly returns and will at once detect and consume hypocrisy. You see, God hates these twin sins of the lips. He hates these twin sins of the lips, flattery and pride. Pride here being self-flattery. Again, Spurgeon says, May there not be here an allusion to those terrible but suggestive punishments which oriental monarchs used to execute on criminals. Lips were cut off and tongues torn out when offenders were convicted of lying or treason. And then he says this, So terrible and infinitely more so are the punishments of sin. And Scottish theologian McLaren adds, Better to have the tongue touched with a live coal from the altar 
than cut out. What he's saying there is that, that it's better to invite conviction now and judgment from loving brothers and sisters now than to stand before the Lord having lived without conviction and having rejected loving correction from brothers and sisters. Let's go on to verse 4. Who have said with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? Woo! These people are getting real rowdy and straight up stupid right now. It's, it's as if as though they are openly declaring war against God himself. David despised these destructive tongues, not only for what they said, for, for spreading evil reports about him, but also for their pride that made them so difficult to stop. It was, if the, as, it was if they were freely saying, you can never make us stop talking what we please. Who can control or restrain us? The sense here is that, that they are saying, so shall it be. Our words are laws and they will be obeyed. There is no standing against our words. Our edicts and decrees will be regarded everywhere. Or if they're not, we will make them to prevail. This, this right here, is a revolt of the tongue and lips. This is, this is a claim of power and self-possession. This is the very language and conduct of that which is anti-Christ, that which opposes and exalts oneself above all that is of God. This is the language of the hearts and lives of, of those who are ungodly and unfaithful, those who are without any yoke or restraint, those who walk about, uh, sorry, those who are resolved to walk after their imagination, those who are resolved to walk after their own evil hearts, those who don't know the Lord or are willing to obey him or be restrained by him. Those who would say these types of things, those who would say our tongues are our own, our lips are our own, who is Lord over us? Those, those are the ones who are unwilling to be restrained by Jesus. To, de to arrogantly claim, to arrogantly declare our lips are our own, who is Lord over us, is, is pure contempt of God's dominion, as if he had no ownership of them as if he had no authority either to command them or to judge them. This, this should strike us as complete foolishness, those of us who are Christians, because who made man's mouth? And whose hand is man's breath? And whose is the air that man breathes? This is absurd and unreasonable because in him we live and move and have our being. And in him who we have all those things must be by indisputable title, Lord over us. So it shouldn't seem strange for me to tell you that the Lord is the owner of our bodies. That he has so much propriety in us that our bodies are actually more his than ours. Paul tells us in, in 1 Corinthians 6.20, that we should glorify God in our bodies, which are his. Our bodies and every member are his. No part is exempted. For those of us who, who profess to be followers of Jesus, there is only one answer to the question 
who is Lord over us. Jesus is our Lord, and he owns our body, our spirit, and our souls. We were bought with a price, and, are therefore, and we therefore must glorify God in our bodies, and that includes our lips and tongue. However, our, our responsibility is not lessened by our conscious or unconscious refusing to acknowledge this, that the Lord is the owner of our, our body or our lips and our tongues. You see, we are responsible for our words as much as we are for the rest of our life. Our lips are not our own because we ourselves are not our own. God gives all things for us to enjoy, but he doesn't give anything away. Everything is still his, and it will never stop being his. Responsibility to use God's gifts in a way that are pleasing to him and to his, to his glory increases with the preciousness of the gift. And, and think about the value of the gift of speech. Speech, as some say, is the chief bond of human society. It's the instrument of, of truth, instruction, command, persuasion, comfort, and conversation. Proverbs even says, all life is in the power of the tongue. You see, many of us know this. We, we are thinking, yeah, yeah, I've heard this all before, but, but yet think about, think about the amount of idle, unprofitable, unkind, unjust, insincere talk that pours out of us every day. Not even to mention what is spoken that is intentionally false, impure, or destructive. And, and let's, let's flip this idea on its head. Let's look at it from the exact opposite side. What should we have spoken that we didn't? Think of all the words of, of counsel, of comfort, of kindness, encouragement, correction, prayer, and praise that should have been spoken but was not. So how can we know how can we know this and have heard this and therefore yet still, still a dullness of, of conscience creeps in? What does all this mean but, but utter forgetfulness of our responsibility to God for our use of this great gift? Our speech, our speech gives way to the motives of our heart. In our hearts, there's this, this continual battle and our flesh is, is crying out continually, we will be our own, and we will not acknowledge the creator and owner of our bodies. So we, as faithful and godly Christians, we must daily ask the Holy Spirit to empower us, to strengthen us, and to guide us in our speech. We must daily preach the gospel to ourselves, to, and preach to ourselves that nothing that we have is our own, and that anything that we have is from God and it's for his glory. If we proclaim Jesus to be Lord of our lives, we must give up claim to everything and declare God as owner of our bodies, lips, tongues, of our time, our talent, our treasure, of our whole lives. Verse 5. Because of the devastation of the afflicted, because of the groaning of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he longs. 
These destructive talkers spoke as they pleased, but they could not stop the Lord from speaking as he pleased. In a timely and dramatic way, the Lord announced that he would act on behalf of the poor and the needy the vic- that were being victimized by these proud, unstoppable talkers. This promise of God is an answer to David's prayer, help, Lord. And now God says, I will. And here I am with timely and powerful help. You see, when, when the oppressors were, were in the height of their pride and insolence, when they, when they say, who is Lord over us, then is God's time to let them know to their cost that he is above them. To let them know that, that though men are false, God is faithful. That though they cannot be trusted, God can be. Now think with me. Think, think of God rising in his might. When he rises, the whole earth is shaking. Nothing stands before him when he rises. And then Spurgeon says this, Poor, sick, needy, sorrowing, sighing child of God, it is you who can bring him, and him being God, bring him into this marvelous state of activity. That's absolutely amazing. Do, do you understand who has your back? Do you understand who's on your side, in your corner? The sovereign king of all, the creator of heaven and earth, the Lord of lords. When we feel weak and overwhelmed, when we are wrong, let us not forget this. That in due time, at the exact right time, God Almighty will rise and totally and fully decimate our enemies and deliver us. Much like earthly fathers, our perfect heavenly father moves when he hears the cries of his children. He will arise and overthrow the enemy, and he will set us, his beloved, in safety. Doesn't this sound a lot like what Jesus says in in Matthew 5? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Comforted. Jesus will make the most of the least. So so when we feel as if all we can do is groan under oppression, feel as if we've been stripped of all good things, of our friends, of material possessions, may we cry unto the Lord who sees our oppressions and hears our groans, who will, according to his abundant mercy and his sovereign will, appear and exert himself on our behalf for our relief and assistance, and for our good and his glory. Verse 6. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. So in contrast to to the idle, two-faced, lying, and proud lips of David's adversaries, God's words are pure pure as if they are fine silver, purified seven times. You see, David is is making a distinction here between the words of of wicked men that are deceitful, sinful, and impure, and the word of God, which is completely and utterly pure. 
This contrast, it's beautiful. Do sinners talk of vanity? Then let godly, faithful Christians speak of Jesus and his gospel. Do they talk impure words? Then let the faithful use the pure words of God, which, like silver, the more used and the more melted in the fire, the more precious they will be. Try it in the furnace seven times. David is saying by this that the word of God is like the purest silver from which the dross or impurities have been completely removed with the greatest care. It's not for common use, but it's for the service of a great king. The scriptures are the words of God, and they are pure and holy, free from all fraud and deceit. They are the scriptures of truth. The promises are the words of God, and these promises are firm and stable and always to be depended on, and will be fulfilled being yes and amen in Christ Jesus. God is sure, faithful, and steadfast in his promises. This means that the word of God can be trusted in every sense. It is, it is good and pure and tested thoroughly. We can trust that, that God himself has tested his own word, but it, it's also been tested by students, by scholars, by critics, by doubters through the centuries. And yet, the word of God still stands. The word of God is, is like a mighty anvil that has that is worn out countless hammers that have pounded upon it. Again, I told you, you'd be hearing a lot from him tonight. Spurgeon says this, The Bible has passed through the furnace of persecution, literary criticism, philosophic doubt, and scientific discovery, and has lost nothing but those human interpretations which clung to it as alloy to precious ore. The experience of saints has tried it in every conceivable manner, but not one single doctrine or promise has been consumed in the most excessive heat. Time magazine even said this of the word of God. After more than two centuries of facing the heaviest guns that could be brought to bear, the Bible has survived and is perhaps the better for the siege. Even on the critics' own terms, historical fact, the scriptures seem more acceptable now than when the rationalist began the attack. Doesn't this at first, though, seem a little strange and a little insignificant or elementary to remind us that God's words are pure and true? But, but think about it. I, I think we need to be reminded of this daily, because if we're honest, how prone are our minds to distrust and doubting? When things start to get hard and we feel overwhelmed, it's so easy for us to freak out and forget that God's words are to be dependent upon in all circumstances because they are pure, true, and sure. This, the Bible, the Word of God, it's a treasure. We should desire this more than gold, more than pure gold. We should desire this, the Bible, more than any treasure. So as children of God, who are to be godly and faithful, our words then should be like God's words. 
If we would be godlike in our conversation and our speech, we must, must watch our language and maintain the strictest purity of integrity and holiness in all of our communication. Verse 7. You, Lord, will keep them. You will preserve him from this generation forever. So after David said that the words of the Lord are pure, then he breaks out into praise because of, of, of uh, the purity of God's word and then declares with confidence God's ability to keep and preserve his own words and his people. He did not only give his word to mankind, his, his providential hand has protect, protected the existence and integrity of his word and his people throughout the centuries. David is confident that the sky is becoming brighter and brighter, that, that night is turning to day. He's declaring, if God be for us, who can stand against us? All things are working together to a perfect end. The prosperity of the wicked is vanity, and his triumph endures but for a little while. David's declaring, but the end of the righteous is peace, because you, God, will keep and preserve them. It, it should be our daily prayer that we, we would stand above the world and its darkness reflecting the glory of King Jesus in the midst of ignorance and sin. Knowing that we are not our own keepers, but that God is. And he keeps us by the power, and he keeps us by his power and in his son, Jesus. Oh, friends, that we would live as if we believed with confidence that the Lord will keep and preserve his word and his people. Verse 8. The wicked strut about on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. David knew that the existence and exaltation of God's pure word would not eliminate the wicked. They would still exist and prowl on every side as they could, but never with assurance of final victory. We might feel that, that this psalm ends on a sad or, or a depressing note, yet David was utterly realistic in his outlook. He knew that, that even with the precious and pure word of God available to men, that many Sons of men would still prefer that vileness be exalted. We could even say of this verse, of this last verse of, of, of Psalm 12, that, that David almost left it as a challenge. Let the sons of men exalt vileness. He would exalt the pure and precious word of God. Eventually, all would see the winner of this contest. Let these wicked men do their worst, God helping him, David would do his best and see the victory of the Lord. And may it be so of us as well. And this should be our attitude as we face trials and tribulations. We should look forward to when God will faithfully deliver. We should continually remind ourselves of our constant dependence on God to guard us and remind ourselves of God's faithfulness and know that our trust is well-placed even when circumstances seem dark. 
So David brings us back to where he started. The wicked are all around. The godly and faithful are decreasing. There is loneliness. There is suffering. And yet, we will all the more hopefully pray, help, Lord. So I'd I'd like to end with this, friends, that with another question. Have you answered the question, who is Lord over me? We must think about this question because this is the most important question that we will ever answer. I have some, some bad news and some good news to aid you in answering this question. And the bad news is this. That we are all sinners by nature and choice, and, and we are separated by our sin from God, and that's because God is a holy and perfect God. And what is required for relationship with a holy and perfect God is perfection. But you see, aren't we all imperfect? I don't think anyone in their right mind would say that they are perfect. Perfect means spotless, not one tiny little blemish. This seems pretty dire, but it doesn't end there. In comes the good news, and the good news is this. God sent his only son, Jesus, to the earth, and he was born of a virgin, and he lived a perfect life and was tempted in every way just as we were, and yet he resisted. And then Jesus was beaten, and he was nailed to a cross to die for our sins, Perfect Jesus was punished for our imperfection. And he was, he was put in a tomb. And on the third day, he rose from the, from the dead and now sits at the right hand of the Father. And all we have to do, friends, all we have to do is believe that Jesus did what he said he did. That we have to believe that, that the Bible says Jesus is who, he's, who the Bible says he is. All we have to do is believe in the finished work of Christ and God no longer sees our imperfection, but we are in Christ and God sees his perfection. And then the Holy Spirit will give us a new heart with new desires and empower us to defeat sin and obey him. So I pray tonight that that if you haven't, you would submit yourself to Jesus Declare him as Lord over you, all of you. What would he not do for you? God has made a way by the precious blood of his only son that it might be us and him forever. At the feet of King Jesus, there is hope, unshakable joy, and purpose in this life, and and so much more. So I beg you, Take him as your Lord and submit yourselves to him. And then you can very safely say, whom have I to fear? Friends, reject this Lord and none can save you. Give yourselves up to him and none can harm you. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful for what you have spoken to us tonight. God, may we instinctively cry out to you first and foremost in times of need. 
Forgive us, God, when we, when we have spoken with flattering lips and with double hearts. God, God, may we declare you as owner of all of us, every part, our bodies, our conduct, our speech. God, help us by your Holy Spirit that our speech would be pure and honoring to you. Help us to not speak when we shouldn't speak and help us to speak when we should God, we are in awe that you hear us when we cry and that you faithfully act on our behalf. God, thank you that in hard times, in the darkness, we can look to you and we can know that at the exact right time, you will deliver us. God, your promises, your word are pure and true and they will stand forever and we are so grateful for that, God. May we rest in the fact that you, God, will hold and preserve your word and your people. God, we thank you for all of this. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.